This morning, we are actually in Exodus. And I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. It's the second book. If you just start at the beginning and flip a little bit, it's pretty easy to find. And as preparation for our time in Exodus, we have spent the last two weeks going through Genesis. And I've talked a little bit about creation, the good creation that God made. I've talked a little bit about the curse that mars that creation. And I talked a little bit about the covenant, God's promise to bless people. That the curse can be reversed to the glory of God. And last week, I talked about how in spite of evil, and even through evil, God's promises are true and faithful, and God works not only in spite of bad things, but actually works those things together for the good of his people. Saw that in the life of Joseph. This week, I want to do an overview of the entire book. This book that shows how God is faithful to his promises. And so there are 40 chapters here. I think the most practical help as I go through this is actually going to be, if your Bible has little headings, to be glancing down and turn with me as I show you the different highlights of this book. And the reason I want to paint a broad outline before we try to fill it in is because, by way of analogy, growing up, I lived in Ferndale for the first 12 years of my life. I suppose technically we lived in Hazel Park for the first year when I was born. But Ferndale, Hazel Park area. And if you take me to that area today, I know that my house is just off of Hilton and Nine Mile, where I grew up. And I remember as a kid, I learned how to bike to the library and my best friend's house. But those are three clear areas in a fog of confusion. I have no idea how Nine Mile and Hilton relates to Woodward. I know they're close by somehow. I don't know if they connect or not. I could not navigate in the town I grew up in to save my life. Because whenever we went somewhere, I climbed in the car and mom or dad drove everywhere. I would have my nose in a book. I would be listening to the radio or looking at things out the window. I remember some highlights but I don't have a clear picture of what the whole thing looked like. And as a kid growing up in Sunday school, that's the exact same way you experience Exodus. You know, okay, there are the ten plagues. Moses. God uses Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. You know they go through the Red Sea. And you know they get the Ten Commandments. Those are probably the two big things. Plagues, Ten Commandments. But you miss how the whole book is put together. And I want to take this week and demonstrate that Exodus is more than a collection of random stories. Exodus is a story of how God works His salvation and rescues people who are in the slums of slavery and by the power of God, the book ends on a mountain of worship. I want to encourage you in the coming weeks and months to read the whole book. And I would encourage you to try and do it. If you can do it in a single week, 40 chapters, it's a long book. 
Parts of it are challenging, but I would encourage you, try to read the whole book before next week. If you're not much of a reader, you can get an app that will actually give you audio for it. And my prayer is that we will have a clearer picture of our redeeming God through this book. As we heard Chris read from 1 Corinthians, this book is an example for us of who God is and how he has worked in the past and what his people have been through. So today, I want to put the salvation of God's people on display and I want to invite you to worship. To do that, I want to take a couple seconds and talk about what worship is and then we're going to go through the book. So when I ask, what do you think of worship? What is the first thing that you think of? What comes to mind? Music? Praising God? Okay, what else? Those are the two big ones that, that, you know, whether it's praising God verbally or whether it's singing. But we know that's not all worship is. Okay, submitting. That's that's a rare one. Prayer. What about giving? Giving is an act of worship. Or some of you may think uh, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Paul says that we are to give our bodies as a living sacrifice And he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. And if you're familiar with Romans, you know, for the rest of the book, he goes in and talks about how Christians are to live in the church, in society. He talks about your relationship with government. He talks about your relationship with your family. And so in every area of life, Paul says, if your body is a living sacrifice, this is what it looks like. This is how you will live. And so Paul defines worship not as just something that we do in song or in prayer. Paul defines all of life as an act of worship. And like you said, submission, that's actually how all of us fit into that picture as an act of worship, as we willingly obey what God has said to do. Here's the thing. Romans chapter 12 has 11 chapters before it. And if you realize what Paul is doing, Paul describes the salvation of God's people. He describes how God works in history to redeem his people. And that instruction to worship comes in response to who God is. I think in an important way, and I'm not trying to be overly technical here, when we think of worship and we think of singing, and even when we think of giving and the things that we do in a whole life of worship, it's easy to define worship based on us. Based on me and what I do. But real, genuine, biblical worship always starts with God. And I don't mean that we forget that God is the object of our worship. That one that we address when we pray and one we address when we sing. But I think when we define worship based on what we do... We forget that God should not only be the object and recipient of our worship, but God should be the motive of our worship. Real worship is serving God because of his great worth. That's what the word comes from, ascribing worth to something that is incredibly valuable. And I I don't mean to be a pain in the neck or clever when I define worship starting with God. I mean that it is very easy with the best of information of intentions to forget that God is not only the object of our worship, but God is the beginning of our worship. 
And I'll, I'll use music since it's the most common way that we think of worship to illustrate it like this. You know the times that you walk into church and for whatever reason, as the congregation starts to sing, your heart's just not there. Maybe you're thinking about what you have to do in the coming week. Maybe you're thinking about an argument that you had. But for whatever reason, you struggle to continue to sing. The congregation can sing around you and your heart's just not in it. Maybe you're even wrestling with God. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're angry with him. For whatever reason, your lips can make the words. But your heart is not motivated by love and by the goodness of God. And what should be something that comes in response to what God has done for you and who he is becomes a routine, something you feel forced to do, something that you feel you must do. And it no longer glorifies God because it just becomes rote, it becomes a habit. Giving can become nothing more than a check that you regularly write like rent. Singing can become nothing more than songs that you would sing in the car. Even with good words, if your heart's not in it, none of these activities are meaningful. This is an incredibly important distinction, making sure that God is not only the end of worship, but also the beginning. Because it is very common to sing songs, to give money, and to do good deeds when your heart is not in the right place. Non-believers do it all the time. There are very generous non-Christians who give to good things. People like to sing. People do good works. So what makes our worship different than those activities? It's not only that God is the object of our praise. It's that God has done great things for us. And as a result, we do all of those in response to his action. That's why God says he loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't care if you begrudgingly write a check or click a button online. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want you to do things. Real worship happens when you see who God is and what he's done, and you realize his love for you, and then your heart nearly bursts with praise. You can't stop worship when you see who God is and what he's done for you. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you realize the love of God sacrificed his son for you. That you are loved. That your sins can be forgiven. You can't stop worship. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. God initiates. And the first step to genuine worship is to know God and to know his love. And that's why I said before Paul writes Romans 12, 1 and 2, he tells you what God has done through the first 11 chapters of his book. And this is a pattern you can see vividly in Exodus. And I believe the value of this book is it shows us a clear picture of God. And because of that, it will help us worship him. So this morning, I want to give you a simple outline. So if you were to divide Exodus into two halves, we're going to start with just two halves and then fill in some blanks, make it a little bit more complicated. The first two halves, the book begins in slavery and ends in worship. And so if you had two points on this outline, it would be, number one, God redeems his people. God redeems his people. And then number two, God teaches his redeemed people 
to worship. God teaches his redeemed people to worship. The beauty of this book is if you struggle to worship, if you come to church and your heart's not in it, or you leave church on Monday morning, you don't feel anything anymore. This book shows you that not only does God work his salvation for you, but he leads you and guides you in your journey towards worship. And the temptations and trials that the children of Israel experienced are things that we experience. Some of the warnings that they experience are fearful and we need them. And the encouragement that they receive is powerful and we need that too. If you could break it down like this, if you're a note taker, for the rest of this series, I think this outline would be helpful. Just to keep track of where we are and to get a big picture. I'm going to give you seven ways to understand this book as you go through it from chapter 1 to chapter 40. That's a little bit crazy because they always taught me that you should never have more than three points. But they did not tell God that when he wrote Exodus. So I'm going to give you the seven points of Exodus. And then pray that God uses this book in our lives today. So first, point one. And I'll give you the chapter breakdowns as we go through this in a minute. I'm just going to give you the, chapter, the, the breakdowns, and then we'll go through them a little more slowly. So, number one, God redeems. God redeems. Number two, God leads and provides. God leads and provides. Number three, God instructs with the law. God instructs with the law. Number four, the people obey. Number five, the people sin. Number six, God judges and forgives. And number seven, the people worship. I'm going to go through that one more time. Number one, God redeems. Number two, God leads and provides. Number three, God instructs with the law. Number four, the people obey. Number five, the people sin. Number six, God judges and forgives. And number seven, The people worship. The first portion of that you can see in chapters 1 through 15. That's a huge chunk. There's a lot of stuff that we're not going to talk about today. But I just want to mention some of the highlights in these first 15 chapters. God redeems. And he does that. He hears their prayers. He knows their suffering. And he sends them a deliverer in his perfect time. He shows his power through the plagues that work their redemption as he pours out his judgment on Egypt. He teaches them about the Passover lamb that protects them from judgment. As God judges people hardened in sin, he warns them that as they refuse to let the children of Israel go, that the death angel is going to come and the firstborn of everyone in Egypt is in real danger. God says, Israel is my firstborn son. If you will not release my firstborn, I will take your firstborn. And for both Egypt and the children of Israel, the only way to avoid this danger is through killing a lamb and taking some of its blood and putting its blood on the doorpost of the house where you live. And this salvation was available to Egyptians And Israelites alike. And God said that if you sacrifice this lamb, that when his angel came and brought judgment on Egypt, 
It would see the blood of the lamb and it would pass over the household under that blood. This picture of judgment and salvation is a powerful picture of how the blood of Christ protects us from God's judgment on sin. Sometimes people talk about judgment. They start feeling like maybe God is angry. That's not the case. God is love and love will always do what's right. And love provides a way of salvation. John the Baptist, when he talks about Jesus Christ, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is exactly what he has in mind. This is a sacrificial lamb that provides protection for sinners like you and sinners like me. He's talking about blood that covers our sin. All of this is part of God's redemption. As the children of Israel leave Egypt after that angel has come, God leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground. And Paul refers to this as their baptism. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 10, the passage Chris read, he says, they were all baptized into Moses. This is the moment when they are finally free from Pharaoh by the power of God. And then in chapters 16 through 18, they begin to learn how to follow God. So if you turn with me, you can actually see we don't have time to read the whole book. I actually, I timed it this week. I just timed a couple chapters. It takes about two minutes per chapter if you read it out loud. And we don't have an 80-minute service. So I'm sorry that we're going a little bit quickly. But in chapters 16 through 18, you kind of glance at the headings and see what's happening there. The children of Israel begin to follow God. And he's led them into a wilderness where they don't have some of the basic things that they need to survive. They need water and they need food. Well, they're in a desert. They don't have either. And so God gives them bread and water in the desert. And you'll notice they, they kind of cry like spiritual babies and God meets their needs. Then as they begin to learn how to follow him, he leads them to Mount Sinai. And in chapters 19 to 23, he gives them the law and he helps them understand it. So in other words, after God redeems them, he teaches them what it means to obey. And it's the same way with us. Salvation always comes before we learn to obey God and never the other way around. If you have come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you may have no idea what it means to follow God. And that's okay. That's why God has put you in a church and that's why God has given us his word. So that we can learn what it means to follow him in the company of believers that he has redeemed. Then in chapters 24 through the first half of 31, you see God's people in awe pledge to love and serve the Lord. This is God's people in obedience. This is where they make a covenant with God and they say, we have seen your power and we have seen your wisdom and we will follow you and do everything that you command. They pledge to obey him. And they begin plans to build the tabernacle, a special tent for worship. And this is a huge deal. God has told them that they can make a place where his glory will reside. And remember, we talked about creation and the fellowship that God intends and the goodness of that fellowship and the incredible privilege of being part of our loving God and fellowship with him. And all of that is lost as a result of the curse. But now, for the first time, God's glory 
has the potential to exist among his people where anyone can go and make an offering of worship to God. Anyone can go with a question for a priest. Anyone can go and have fellowship with God for the first time. This book is on an upward track. It starts down in slavery. And up to this point, they've had their fears. They've had their doubts. But God has dealt with them patiently. And they have seen more and more of God's power and goodness as he has rescued them and provided for them and begun to instruct them. And then it goes off a cliff. The end of chapter 31, this upward track comes crashing down. And in chapters 31, the second half, through the first half of chapter 35, it describes one of the most spectacular moral failures in all of history. This is the people's sin. And if you just glance at the headings, you can see it's going to talk about the golden calf. Moses, remember, is actually on the mountain talking with God about how to build a place of where they're going to worship. And the people grow impatient and think he's never coming back. And they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them an image to worship. And immediately after God has told them, do not make any image of me, they immediately disobey. And instead of worshiping the living God who has redeemed them and instructed them, they fall back into a kind of worship that they understand that they're familiar with. And this is the part where, where Paul says in Corinthians, 23,000 of them fell in that day. You can read about God's judgment on them throughout these chapters here. Their sin is incredibly costly. It would be foolish of us to be too judgmental towards them. There is not a believer alive who has not failed God in some way. All of us struggle with sin. And our sin is serious. This is a warning for believers. But don't miss this. This failure is recorded in a book about God's redemption. It does not derail the end of the book. And if you're not a Christian today... This second part of the book that describes God's judgment here. You see it in Egypt. You see the danger that even being in God's people, it doesn't mean you're part of God's people. And some of, some of them face his entire wrath. And this is where the story ends for them. Not everyone in the children of Israel make it to chapter 40 and see that worship. Some of them die here. Some of these people do not repent and they experience God's wrath. And so, for believers and unbelievers, this is a time to check your heart. This is a time to see, am I faithful to what God has done? If you don't know for sure, if you know the Lord, let me urge you to repent from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you are a Christian today, these chapters also contain encouragement. I in no way want to excuse sin but I do want to say this, if you are struggling with sin and you feel like there's no hope, God is merciful and his grace is greater than your sin. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10:13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Apostle John writes that no believer can continue in sin, but we must continually turn from it. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, like the blood of that lamb, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Exodus gives us a clear picture of the danger of sin, both for believers and for unbelievers. The cost is high, but it also gives us a picture of the hope that God is greater than our sin. When the New Testament warns of the danger of sin for believers, it makes it very clear that God disciplines those he loves. And this is an instruction for us that we have to take sin seriously. But praise God, the book ends with chapters 35 through 40 describing the building of the tabernacle and the glory of God descending on it as the people are gathered around it. And the glory of God that left Eden when Adam sinned is now among God's people and he has promised to bless them. Christian, this gives us a sense of where we are going. We have not seen God's glory like this, but this is our future hope. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that the glory of Christ is even greater than the glory of God in Exodus. The glory that shook a mountain, that split the sea. And Paul says we are being changed into that glory. One day we will see Christ and we will not need to look away. But the journey from slavery to worship is not a straight line. Even those who begin to follow God sometimes fall away. So let me ask you today, where are you on that journey? Where is your heart? Do you have a heart that is motivated to love and worship the Lord because of what He's done? Or are you struggling? All of us are in different places today. So let me ask a couple of questions that I think will hopefully help apply this book to us. And my prayer is that God will continue to use it in our lives as we go through it in the coming weeks. First, if you have never trusted the Lord by believing that he died for you, for your sins, by repenting of your sins, let me urge you today to repent and to believe. I realize that I'm talking to a group of people. Many of you are believers. Many of you have been in church for a long time. But the reality is many of the redeemed people of God And when I say redeemed, I mean the people that he brought out of Egypt. Many of them perished in the wilderness. Many of them were not faithful and demonstrated that they were not God's people by disobedience. And they bore his judgment because of it. So if you've been in church your whole life, I would encourage you. It is actually a healthy thing to do to test yourself to see whether you are of the household of faith. I don't want to build a ton of anxiety but I also don't want to leave people in a false sense of security. So where is your heart today? Do you know the Lord? Are you agreeing with God that your sin is treason? And do you recognize that Jesus bore the punishment for it on the cross? Exodus shows us the danger of rejecting God's salvation. As he describes his mercy, God says, I will by no means clear the guilty. 
because he is a loving God, because he is a just God. And so if Jesus is not your savior today, there is no other forgiveness. Let me urge you to trust him and to repent. And the way to show that trust and repentance is through baptism. So if you need to be baptized, let me know. I would love to help you with that. But trust Jesus today. Secondly, if you're a believer and you're learning to follow the Lord, let me urge you to dig into this study of Exodus. Let me encourage you to be faithful to read it as we go through it. There are some hard things in this book. I agree very much with what C.S. Lewis said, that the things that are hardest to read in the Bible are the things that will speak to you the most. They are correcting areas in your heart and in your life where you need to be in line with who God is and what he's doing. So let me encourage you, believer, to study this book as we go through it together. And maybe you're a believer and you're caught in sin. Maybe the golden calf is somewhat like where you're at today. I don't know what it might be. It's probably different for everyone here. Let me urge you to repent. The danger is very real. The good news is God disciplines those he loves. His discipline is not because of anger. But the scriptures do warn that some who profess Christ are not saved and they will fall away. If you continue in sin, that could be you. But let me also give you the hope that Exodus holds out. God says, after the golden calf, God says, He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We serve a gracious, forgiving, and loving God. For all of us, my prayer is that we would be amazed at the awesome power and goodness of God. And my prayer is that our hearts would not be able to stop worshiping Him. As we close, I'd like to ask that we have a few moments of silence. I would ask that you would spend some time talking to the Lord right now and ask Him what He would say to you through this book and see where your heart is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are our maker, our defender, our redeemer, and our friend. You have made us, you have offered us redemption through the blood of Christ. You have promised us a future home. You have welcomed us into your family. Lord, I confess that many times we do serve idols. Sometimes we don't even realize it. I pray that you would work in our hearts, Father. That we would be reminded of who you are. That we would be in awe of your incredible power and of your incredible love. And I pray that you would move us to worship. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.